Like Aiden said, we are in the middle of a series called Jesus in Between. This is what we're doing. The premise of the series is this. Oftentimes, we hone in on Jesus at the Christmas story, right? Jesus and his birth. And then we fast forward and we see Jesus in Easter and what we celebrate there with his death and resurrection. And when we do that, we miss a ton about who Jesus is and what he's done. Like we don't see the in-between moments, and so we create an inaccurate view when we just look at those two events. And that inaccurate view leads to some misconceived pictures of who Jesus is. And so we got some pictures up here on the screen. So you got some different ideas of who Jesus is. And we create these kind of based off of what our understanding is. You got cool Jesus up there, Superman Jesus in the clouds, religious Jesus, right? You follow the rules, do what you need to do. And then my favorite, Brad Pitt Jesus, right? You got that look right there. But here's the thing. Those pictures just kind of resonate what our culture tags Jesus to be. And when we just tag him as the Easter guy and the Christmas guy, and we we go to church and experience it that way, we miss what he's all about. So that's why we're going through this series. We want to see who is Jesus in between those two significant events. And last week we started the series, Pastor Dan launched it, and he had three things to talk about. The first thing is this, with Jesus, we either receive him or we reject him. Right? There is no kind of like backing away saying, you know what, that's fine. There's no neutral stance on Jesus. You receive him, right, and, and you give your life to him and you have eternal life or you reject him and your life goes a different route and, and you don't pursue saying yes to him. That, everybody has that option. Everybody does make a decision in that moment. The second thing is Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. Right? Jesus entered a lot of messy situations. Jesus entered a lot of hard situations. And in every single situation, he entered it with grace, lovingly, kindly, having conversations with people, navigating situations, yet he never let off the gas of truth. Like Jesus stated truth clearly, but he did it in a way that people knew that he loved them. And then lastly, what we're gonna lead into today, Jesus is fully man and fully God. Now, I work with students, and so I present them with this question, and sometimes I set them up for failure just to kind of navigate who, uh, who Jesus is, right? So I'll ask them, percentage-wise, Jesus, man and God, what do you think the percentage is? Is God, uh, Jesus, 90% God and 10% man? Is Jesus like 50% God and 50% man? And it's fascinating to see them articulate, like, yeah, like if God's, or if Jesus is God and man, like what's that all formulate? And he's 100% man and 100% God. He's fully God and man. And it creates an interesting paradox, one that I would say kind of can, can be complicated in our minds to navigate, but it creates an interesting paradox for how he navigated life. And on the screen, Hebrews 2 will be up there as we launch into what we're gonna talk about today. And this is what the writer of Hebrews said. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, even though the temptation may not be exactly like what you're going through. Right? You're like, well, it doesn't really line up. Even though it may not be exactly what we read in 1 Corinthians 10.30, says that all temptation is common to mankind. Jesus is fully man. He experienced temptation. Jesus 
on this earth experienced life just like me and you. Like he experienced life like we do, the ups and the downs to it. He navigated situations, and today we're going to look at how he navigated temptation. We're going to look at a passage where he was literally tempted by Satan. Now, here's the interesting thing about temptation. I think it's hard, confusing, maybe unique to understand. And as I was studying this, in our culture, it doesn't really help us out. Like our culture, our world around us doesn't necessarily help us out with the understanding of temptation. Like we often associate temptation with this external pull to sin, which don't get me wrong, there is some of that, but I think we leave out a lot of, a lot of what it actually is. When we understand it just as an external pull to sin, it becomes this, this idea of like, oh man, I'm really tempted to eat that donut, but I'm on a diet, right? So I, pr- I don't know, should I eat the donut or not? Or man, I'm really tempted to binge watch Netflix all night and I know that work is the next day, right? And we we associate with that. I'm really tempted to lie. I'm really tempted to cheat, whatever it may be. And so what we associate it with is temptation is kind of this wall in front of what we desire and want. And somehow we got to figure out how to navigate and get around that wall of external wants and needs. And I would say it's, it's more comprehensive than just that. That temptation is not just an external pull to sin, but really temptation, you can write this down, it's not on the screens, but temptation, literally what we're going to look at, the word temptation equals testing. Temptation equals testing. The word temptation in the passage we're going to look at, you drill that word all the way back to the Greek foundation of it, and this is what it means. This would be the definition, okay, which means to reveal the truth. Testing means to reveal the truth of what is inside, not just to attempt to do evil on the outside. Read that again. It's reveal the truth on what is inside, not just to attempt to do evil on the outside. Testing reveals who I truly am. And you know that to be true because in all of life, right, in all of life we are tested and it reveals who we are. Right? If you were in sports, right, you might have been on a team and you had the jersey, but not until you had the testing of the game or the match or being on the field against an opponent did you really experience testing and really find out who you are. Are you really worthy of wearing the jersey, right? For some of you, it's work. You experience this in work. You have projects to get done. You have meetings to go to. And when you get to that point and that meeting or that project is due, it reveals who you are, the testing of getting that done. It reveals if you're passionate about what you're doing. It reveals if you prepared for what you're doing, right? There's testing. I was even talking to high school students. There's two high school students I was talking to this past week. Like even the simplest form of a driving test. Like the driving test is there to test if you actually went out before the test. Like to to see what your knowledge is and how well you navigate the roads to see if you actually deserve the driver's license or not. It reveals, it reveals who we are. It's an identity thing. It proves and reveals what's inside of us. It's not just an external pull to sin. Yes, there's some of that. Don't get me wrong, we're gonna navigate some of that. But really, it's testing the inside. And Matthew 4 is the actual scene of where we see Jesus running into this temptation with Satan. So if you have a Bible, turn there. On your phones, turn there. It's gonna be on the screens also. We're gonna see how did Jesus navigate this testing? Okay, how did he walk through this? Now, before we get into the actual passage, if you're turning there, it's going to be on the screen. We're going to go up two verses to Matthew 3, 
verses 16 and 17, because we have to start with the context of this scene, and it starts in chapter 3. If you look there, you'll see that uh, Jesus approaches John the Baptist and says, I want to be baptized. Like, I want to be baptized, and John's like, you're the son of God. Like, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Like, you don't understand. This is not something I should do. And she's like, no, 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 you need to baptize me. I want you to baptize me. This needs to happen. So John's like, okay, I'll do it. And so we see Jesus get baptized in Matthew 3. And then ending of Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, powerful context to the rest of our conversation. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Two things. One is we see the Trinity, okay, the Godhead of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, all present in this scene. Like we see that back in creation. It's a powerful picture at Jesus' baptism. They're all present. And secondly, we see God the Father speak some awesome truths, some profound truths that will lead us into what is next. This is my son. He speaks identity into Jesus. This is my son whom I love. Like I love him and I'm well pleased. I'm gonna encourage you. You are doing the mission that I've set you to do. Now, What was spoken at baptism was put into question in the wilderness. What was spoken at baptism was put into question in the wilderness, and we're going to flesh that out. So if you go to Matthew 4, which should just be right there for you, we're going to start in verse 1. Now, before I dive into this, okay, I studied this for about two weeks now, and uh, there's certain things, and I love doing a series like this because Jesus in between, you, you read through the Bible or, or you come to service, you engage with different uh, life of Jesus, and sometimes we just kind of walk through passages and it's just kind of normalcy to us. Like it just kind of happens and, and we're like, oh yeah, that is, and we don't ever navigate what's going on. And this was a passage for me personally, so I'll just admit that, that I read through and what I saw was, yep, Jesus went to the wilderness, he got tempted by Satan, he defeated Satan. Cool, let's move on, right? And that, that does happen, but engage with me because what is in God's word here, in this passage, is so profound to understanding who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and how we live life pursuing that. There's so much truth and so much relevant cultural things that are in this that we have to navigate. It blew my mind the last two weeks studying this. And so engage with what's, what's going on because I think God is, is speaking to us in a unique way through this passage. Matthew 4, verse 1, okay? This is what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Okay, Mark 1, 12 also references the temptation of Jesus. And then Mark also says, at that moment, right then, literally right after the baptism, Jesus is going into this event of temptation. You have to know that. Like right after, which makes what God the Father told Jesus, spoken to Jesus, even that much more profound when we navigate the next couple verses. Led by the Spirit. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. I I talk to students, I talk to people. Oftentimes we associate temptation with something bad. And I'll talk to students who are like, man, I'm really tempted with this and I just feel terrible and sickened and I'm, so, I'm so bad and I, I need help and this and that. And it's like, 
yes, we can help you navigate that, but temptation inherently is not bad. I would actually say temptation is good because it reveals who you are. It reveals who you are, and the Spirit is leading Jesus out to the wilderness and saying, let's reveal who Jesus is. You kind of get a sneak peek into who Jesus is through this story of the temptation, the event of the temptation. The second part of the verse one is into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is important because we have to see it's a real setting and a real temptation. It's not a made-up story. Jesus literally went out to the wilderness, the desert, and he was tempted by Satan, the devil himself, face to face. It's not a made-up story. It's not just a story to fill gaps. This really happens. The ultimate battle took place. And then we move to verse 2. Setting up context here. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Oh, I'll be darned, he must have been hungry. 40 days and 40 nights of no food. Holy cow, that's an understatement when you say Matthew. Like, I would love to question Matthew. What were you thinking? He was hungry. I would have put like a more, like, term that would have encompassed what he actually was. I personally would have been, like, overly hangry. Like, I would have been very upset at that moment. Like, I need some food. But it's important for us to see this, joking aside, that that Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without any food. He had liquids, like he was drinking and stuff, but he had no food, and 40 days, 40 nights, is on the brink of severe damage to your body. He literally went to the brink of what his body could take in fasting. What's also fascinating about this verse, 40 days, 40 nights, it's synonymous, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, of the Israelites wandering the desert for 40 years. And we see that they were tested in that time. And what takes place here with Jesus being tested by Satan kind of is a forward thinking of he fulfilled what they couldn't. Just keep that in your mind as we navigate this. Verse three, let's get into the thick of it. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The tempter is Satan himself. And if you're writing down notes, this is what I write down. Test number one. Test number one, write this down. Prove you can satisfy your appetites apart from God's goodness. Prove you can satisfy your appetites apart from God's goodness. There are two things that are interesting about this test. Two things Satan starts off with. He starts by attacking Jesus' identity. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. I I love studying the Bible for this reason. He he attacks Jesus' identity. He's like, if you are the son of God, so you're the son of God, I hear, right? What what he attacks is what what God the Father stated to him in the baptism. You are my son. Satan goes right for that. The second thing is, Satan attacks Jesus' appetite. Like we said, I bet he was hungry. Like, I'm hungry after six hours of sleep. Like, I need some some food to sustain me. Like, Jesus is hungry. His appetite is going. He is completely empty. He probably wants some food. Remember, he is fully human. He experienced life like we did. Like, he's not, uh, like, he's going through it. And so he probably wanted some food. What Satan is doing is he's tempting Jesus to fill himself by himself. Like, fill yourself, Jesus. And it's interesting it, it, it kind of resembles a story back in Genesis 3. Like we just went through this series, long story short, and we just blew through the God's story in six weeks. And if you go back to creation week, 
we see that uh, God created man and woman. This is creation and curse together. God created man and woman. It was beautiful. Everything was there in the garden. They had everything. It was amazing. It was set for success. What happens is in Genesis 3, we see that this serpent, Satan himself, kind of weaves himself into the story. Kind of weaves himself into the story, and he interacts with the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, and he says this. He says this. Did God really say to you you couldn't eat from that tree? Like, I know there's all this creation, but he told you not to eat from that tree. Did he really say that? I'm not really sure. Like, do you realize that if you do eat from that tree, you're not going to die? Like, that's a fib. Don't believe what God said. Do you, do you realize that God, he, he just knows that you're going to be like him? And so why not eat from the tree? And we see in Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. What happened was they gave in to the appetite. Like, like God gave him an appetite. God gave him a hunger to experience goodness, to experience what he had created for them. And what they did is instead of enjoying what God had gave them, they filled their appetite with the one thing. That he's like, no, 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 trust me on this. Trust me on this. Satan was tempting them to fill their own appetite by their own means instead of relying on God's goodness like we just sang about. Instead of trusting in his faithfulness. And Satan is saying to Jesus, hey, hey, since you're the son of God, why is your father not providing for you? Like, he saw you go for, through 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Like, why is he not giving you anything to eat, Jesus? Hey, since you're the son of God, like, there's a stone here. You're powerful enough to make that into bread. Why don't you do it? Hey, if you're the son of God, since you're the son of God, you say, why don't you fill yourself up? You can do it. And he's poking and poking and poking at Jesus to fill himself up. He's pinpointing his emptiness. He's questioning God's apparent lack of provision. Just find something to fill yourself up. You'll be fine then. And this is exactly what he does with us. We all have an appetite. We all have hunger. We all experience emptiness. We all want to fill ourselves up with something in life. Like, and a lot of it's good. Like God gives us those desires. God gives us those appetites to run after really, really good things. A silly example, okay? Silly example to make a point in this. Uh, I, obviously, I, I'm here during the week in my office, here and there, and so I uh, meet with students, maybe parents, maybe you staff, whatever it may be, and I'll invite them into my office. And about four weeks ago, I instituted something that every office needs, a candy dish. Like you just need a candy dish in there. Can I get an amen? Thank you. I got one, and I'll go with it, right? You get a candy dish there, and what I do is I fill it up so that people walking in will feel welcome and comfortable and, you know, they'll eat from the candy dish, whatever it may be. And so I have been filling this up and some staff members will come into my office too and steal my candy. But that, I'm not bitter about that, right? But what happens is, what happens is we get to lunchtime. And I'm not a really good planner. I don't pack a lunch or, you know, I don't want to go out and spend the money or time to go get a lunch. And so I'm just sitting there and it's 1130, it's 12, the stomach starts making noises, and you're like, oh, I'm really hungry. The appetite is going, and I'll spin in my chair, and I'll see the candy dish. 
Like, no, oh, that looks enticing, you know, see that? And I'll go over and there's some Reese's, some Hershey. And so I'll pop a couple candy into my mouth and I'll eat that. Now, here's the thing. That's not going to fill me up. That is not the goodness of my wife's cooking I could have had left over from last night. It's not the goodness of going out and getting something, right? It's just a quick fix that maybe I won't be as hungry five minutes later if I eat that Reese cup. And that's exactly what we do with our appetites in life. We go for that quick fix. We go for the thing that I think is going to fill me up and we try to fill ourselves up with these little things. For example, like relationships. Maybe for some of you, that's relationships. You're like, I am so hungry. I, I am so, appetite is going. My, my, my life is empty without a relationship. I need to be in a relationship. I need to have someone beside me and that's a God-given desire. There's nothing wrong with being in a relationship. Obviously, he instituted marriage. Yet when we go outside of God's goodness and we try to provide for ourselves and we'll compromise things and we'll get into situations that are unhealthy just so that I'm in a relationship, it's not going to fill us up. Instead of trusting God that he's going to provide in the timing, what about this? Sex. We'll just go here. Sex is a God-given appetite and desire. It's something God's instituted. He gave to us. He's provided and said, enjoy. And yet when I am not married in my hunger and my emptiness and I want to fulfill this appetite because it, it feels good and I know I need it and things of that nature, and we sleep with our boyfriend or our girlfriend or just someone to fulfill that appetite outside of God's goodness within the confines of marriage, We're just filling our appetite that's not going to last and ultimately doesn't line up with God's goodness and what he's provided for us. Parents, I'm a new parent. I think this is relatable too that that in our kids' lives, God's given us kids and we want to see them succeed. And out of that, we desire so much for them to succeed that we will get them involved in every little thing possible so that they have the best chances and the scholarships and they got looking to college and we got this figured out instead of relying on God's goodness that he's going to provide and he's going to help your kids succeed and well i got them in all this stuff and we we're doing this but yet will they ever see god's goodness themselves right, we can do this with money like i don't know if i'm secure enough in, in my finances and so i got to go out and do this this and this and i got to figure out how to manage and money becomes a thing that we replace in our lives and we start worshiping that Here's ultimately what it comes down to. We make good things into ultimate things. All those things are inherently good. Like, I hope your kids are like, you enjoy hanging out with them. I, I hope marriage, all that, like, but we can make them ultimate things. We can make them things that we worship, things that we replace instead of God's goodness, instead of looking to God and what he's done for us. It's interesting to see how Jesus responds to this test. Matthew 4.4 is what it says. Matthew says this, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responds by referring to Deuteronomy 8. Okay, let me note this before I get into that context, that um, a lot of times you read this passage, and I've read this before too, uh, that we just associate Jesus responded with a verse, and so that's how we respond to temptation. Like Jesus threw a verse at Satan, Satan's like, ah, that hurt. I'm going to run away. No, no, no. It's not how it works. That is a misconceived idea of what's happening here. It's a misunderstood, misunderstood 
understanding of God's word. What's happening here is that God is aligning his understanding, a reminder, or Jesus is a reminder of who God is and what he's all about. That's why he's using God's word. That Jesus wants to remember what God's done for him, the goodness of God, so that he can face the test that might be in front of him. Satan might be controversial. Satan's kind of a biblical theologian. He knows his Bible. A verse that has the word bread in it is not going to scare him. He actually uses a passage here in the future. So I'm going to note that Jesus is using scripture to point to who God is and all he has done. But in Deuteronomy 8, this passage is referring to a time that the Israelites were in the desert wandering. And they were questioning God. Why aren't you providing for us? We've been here for so long. Feed us. Help us. Figure this out for us. We can do that in life. And we start to question. We start to question. Jesus is like, no, no, no. God's goodness is the only thing that's going to sustain and satisfy me. That's why he used that verse as a reminder of what God has done. He provided for the Israelites in the desert. And right now, maybe God has you going through a fast. Not not always easy to note that. But God maybe has you going through a fast. Maybe right now the hunger pains are really going. Maybe you feel empty, lonely. You don't know how to manage what's going on. You're like, what in the world is, is happening? And there are so many things you can run to. And God is saying, no, 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 no. Remember my goodness. Remember what I did for you. Remember I created this all for you. Remember sending Jesus. He died for you so you could have life in me. So often we can run into our appetites and try to satisfy them on our own. Will God's goodness satisfy you? Will you run to your father or force the appetite? Reveals truly what's going on in your heart. So that's the first test. Okay, we could stop there and it's like, oh, right? There's two more to go, okay? There's two more to go. But as we navigate this, we're in the first one. How are we satisfying our appetites? Matthew 4, 5 through 6 is the next test. Matthew writes this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Okay, they saw the temple as, as the presence of God. And so takes him to the highest point. If you are the son of God, note, Another test, another attack on the identity of Jesus. He said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now listen, this one before we get into what test two is, is an interesting one. It's one that's hard to relate to when you initially read it. Like not many of us in here are, are really tempted to go throw ourselves off the highest point in Norton or Wadsworth, whatever it may be. It might be a hard one to relate to, but G, or Satan is not tempting Jesus by saying, hey, you, you go throw yourself off this building just to throw yourself off the building. What he's doing is he's tempting Jesus by saying, prove to me that you are right. Prove to me that you are right. And this is test number two. Prove you are right apart from accomplishing your mission. Prove you are right apart from accomplishing your mission. Notice, Satan quotes Psalm 91. I told you, he's a kind of a biblical uh, theologian. He knows some of the Bible, okay? What's interesting, though, is not completely. He doesn't completely quote the passage that he refers to. Psalm 91, 11 through 13 Satan quotes 11 and 12. Here's what it says. For he will command his angels concerning you 
to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. That's what Satan said to Jesus. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. Verse 13, you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Notice what Satan does. Satan pushes for Jesus to prove that he is right, yet leaves out, leaves out the mission of why Jesus is here. That's the temptation. He's like, or he's like Jesus, Jesus, provide with me, why, why is the Bible right? Why is God right? Tell me about that. Debate with me. Go back and forth. Prove to me. Like that, that's, come on, bring it. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm here to fulfill the mission that I've been sent to do. as to save humanity from their sins. And this can happen to us too. Satan can run into our life and say, your life is about proving that you're right about your beliefs and about what, who you are. When we fight to be seen as right, it costs us in investing into the right things. Like, my need to be right can forfeit my ability to love and lead my family. Husbands and wives, you know this to be true. You get an argument, it's hard not to be like, I'm right, you're wrong, Done. Let's just move on, right? I struggle with that all the time. And yet it compromises loving and leading the family. For me, it would compromise loving and leading my wife. My need to be seen as right can forfeit the opportunity for me to see my friends, neighbors, and coworkers come to know Jesus. Right? That we can go into work and we can go into our neighborhood and be like, I'm right. Like, I know what's right. Don't you believe me? Whether it's about faith or politics, whether it's about your sport, whatever it may be, you prove so much that you're right that you missed a chance for your friends to see Jesus. My need to be right or to be seen as right can forfeit a relationship instead of restore it. It unfortunately happens all the time. Like I'm right, they're wrong, it's over. I don't forget that relationship then. If they don't agree with me, forget it. What happens is we move past restoring it. We don't do the hard work to say, what's the mission? God wants us in relationships. Let's restore what's there. This one might, might get some emails on. We'll go with it because of the culture and what it's feeding us. My need to be seen as right will make me fight for my political party or my person winning the election or that issue being passed instead of finding importance and seeing people say yes to Jesus. Our culture is trending this way. Social media feeds it like crazy. I work with students. Like we talk about social media all the time. That, that we get on a platform of politics and this is, this is the guy that I'm voting for, whatever it may be. And so I need everybody to know that that's the right way and that's where we need to go and that's what it's all about. And in turn, what happens is they never see Jesus. They never see who he is and what he's done for them. So our culture is pushing that. These things are against the grain of culture. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're not here to prove right, wrong, about faith, whatever it may be. You're here to live out the mission. That's to see people come to know Jesus. That's to see people be discipled. Matthew 4, 7 is Jesus' response to this. It says this, Jesus answered him. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. Jesus goes back again to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 this time, and he refers to the Israelites who are navigating, they're still wandering in the desert, right? That would have been probably a boring time, but they're still navigating, wandering in the desert, and uh, the Israelites are being tested. And they're like, God, why are you not providing for us? What is going on? They're questioning who he is, what he is about. But here's the thing, why 
Jesus stated this, is when we trust in God, we need to trust that he is in the right place. Like, his place is right. He is right. And when we see that he is in the right place, then we find out what our place is. That we don't have to argue that our God is right. We don't have to argue that everybody else is wrong. Listen to us. But we rather know that he is right and we know our place and live out our mission. We're not here to argue, debate. We're not here to pick it. We're not here to post on social media all of what I stand for and this is where I would go and this is why this is right. We're here to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're here to make Jesus make sense. We're here to disciple people. That's what he's saying. Like this test is so relevant. Come on now, you know it's relevant. Like I see it all the time. I see it in me. I see it with my family. I see it with what I believe. Like there's just things that irk me. I'm like, no, they're wrong. I need to tell them they're right. And yet God is like, oh, remember why you're here. If you're a Christ follower, you're here for the mission. So we see, first is how do we satisfy your appetites? Second is, are we, are we running into our need to be right over the mission? The last thing is this and found in verse eight. This is what Matthew says. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now listen, this is another kind of funky one. The first one is very relatable. We're like, I get it. He's hungry. Often we're hungry. Like I get it. There's kind of a, an illustration there. These last two are kind of hard to navigate because we wouldn't say like, man, I really struggle. I have this idol. I have this face of Satan or this like, wood carving, and I, I'm like tempted to worship it. Right? It seems kind of weird. Like we, most people wouldn't be tempted by that. But what Satan is doing is he's tempting Jesus and he's testing us to pursue a Christianity without a cross. That's the next test. Pursue a Christianity without a cross. This one is so sly and so sneaky. That's, it should scare us to death. What he's tempting Jesus to do is he's saying, hey, come here. You should worship me. You should follow me. You should give your allegiance to me. And if that happens, my response, I'll give you everything in the world. You can rule over everything. People will bow down to you. It'll be great. And you won't even have to suffer the cross. You can forget about that. I can just give it to you now. He's tempting Jesus to totally disown the cross. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. My mission, my vision, my purpose for coming here is the cross. And yet, Satan can do that with us. Satan can so easily navigate inside of each and every one of us, test each and every one of us to live a very good, a very moral Christian life and yet totally forget about the cross. I can attend church and go to Bible studies not have an internal, internal gospel change. I can live the good Christian moral life, yet never say yes to Jesus. That shocks people. You can come to church, you can do Bible study, you can serve faithfully, and yet never understand and come to the conclusion that you need to say yes to Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross and the grace and mercy and love that you accept and then extend to others. That we can just live and this becomes a social club where we do our thing and we're a bunch of good doers, all that stuff. Satan would be totally fine if we all embraced Christian morals 
yet never the power of the cross that changes lives. Satan's okay with us creating a culture of Christianity. He's like, go ahead. Like, good people don't scare me. Go ahead, you know, do whatever Bible studies. Go ahead, serve in whatever way. Go do this. Be good. Do gooder, right? Do gooder. Get out there, do gooder. And yet we miss the cross. He would love for that to happen because Satan knows exactly what happens on the cross. He knows that his defeat is there. It scares him to death because internal gospel transformation only happens because of the cross. A bunch of people that do good, their lives never change. They just happen to do good. Only through the gospel, only through the gospel can we experience eternal life, life with meaning and purpose. It's interesting Matthew 4, 10 through 11. Jesus responds to this test very clearly and with a lot of authority. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. He's like, I'm, I'm done. You don't got me. There's no way that you're going to test me into all this stuff. You're not going to you're not going to point me away. You're not going to tear me away from the mission, the vision, the purpose of why I came here and that is to save humanity from their sin that separates them from God. There's no way, Satan. You're not going to do it. And it's fascinating because this is not the only passage where Jesus very clearly says away from me Satan in some way or sort. It's fascinating. We go on further in Matthew, Matthew 16. He's talking to his disciples. Matthew says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter, okay, Peter's a pretty bold dude. He'll speak his mind. He took him aside, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Away from me, Satan. Get behind me. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I kind of relate to Peter. If a leader of mine, whether like my parents or someone that leads me in life were to say to me, hey, this is gonna happen. Like they're gonna kill me and, and it's all gonna go on good from there. I'm gonna be like, No, they're not. Like, not if I have anything to say about it. And yet, it's interesting. You read this passage, you're like, why do you tell Peter? Why do you call Peter Satan? Get behind me, Satan. When you look back at Matthew 4, you see that Jesus is so set on the mission of taking the cross. The purpose of him coming to this earth, that whether it is his deepest foe in Satan or his closest disciples in Peter, he's not afraid to say, you are in my way. I have billions, trillions of people that I'm going to save and I want them to see what I've done for them on the cross. Yet we can miss that. We can miss saying yes to Jesus. It's an interesting quote from Oswald Chambers. He says this, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ, all hell terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. And I pray for us that that's not true. He's, he's speaking truth into the culture that heaven, of course, they're interested in it. They're, they're savior, the savior of the world is down here dying for humanity. Their king is down, they're fascinated with it. 
Oh my goodness, Jesus would do that? Hell is terribly afraid. They know what it means for them. Satan knows what it means. It's death, eternal suffering. He gone at the cross. But for us, are we okay with just merely like, eh, it's the cross, right? It's what we look at at Easter. Kind of what I wear the necklace with, right? I come to church and I do good and, and we're, we're pursuing some cool things and, you know, I'm in a Bible study. I'll be fine. I'll just keep doing good and good never saved anybody. Good is not good enough. Only through the gospel are you saved. Just don't miss that. Don't miss that at all. So what's that leave us with? The cross ultimately is the answer to the test. The cross ultimately is the answer to the test. And it tells me something about Jesus. You might want to write this down. Jesus perfectly passed the test by taking the cross. That's, that should blow our minds. The, this testing he experienced in the wilderness face-to-face with Satan, he was tested, I bet, day in and day out to say, you know what, is this cross thing a really good idea? You see him right before he takes the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is literally sweating blood. There is suffering, there is pain coming, there is just an immense amount of stress. It would have been a lot easier if he would have said, you know what, I'll take ruling over the world through what Satan wants over suffering for the cross, yet, listen, Yet, he would not have fulfilled the mission of seeing people being saved from their sins and spending eternity with God. He loved us so much, he was willing to go through that test and ultimately come out and pass the test by taking the cross. There's two things we see. He's the empathetic, empathetic priest. He's sympathetic with us. Like, we need to see that. He is man. He went through what we went through. Like he's here to help us. He went through temptation and testing. He lived through the ups and downs, yet he's also the authoritative atonement. Get behind me, Satan. Get away from me. And ultimately on that cross, for the final, he's like, get out of here. Get out of here. You're defeated. His authority is present in the cross. We need to see that paradox and how it works. Because here's the thing, some of us in this room, and I would say for the longest time, I struggled deeply with this, that we come to church, we serve, and I still struggle day in and day out to say, you know what, I want to do good, I'm gooder, I'll be fine, that's just how we live life, this church thing sets us up, boom. And Satan's like, yep, that's how I want you to see it. Just a bunch of do good stuff that we pursue and miss the gospel. And for, for some of us in this room, maybe it's actually saying yes to Jesus. You've been invested into the church. You've been invested in what's going on here. You've been invested and yet you've never said yes to Jesus and that's mind-boggling to us. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's only by the cross that you're saved. You cannot do good enough. There is no gooder person that can make it to heaven. It's only by the cross. And for you, it's taking that step saying, you know what, I've never realized the grace and mercy and love that Jesus extended to me and I'm not expressing that to others. The gospel's not apparent. For some of you, you come here and, and church or Christianity, Jesus is a new thing. Maybe it's something you don't engage with usually. And we love that you're here. We absolutely love that you're here listening in and, and just kind of getting into the mix of what's going on. And for you, I would challenge you, what does this mean for you? For some of you, you're like, this God is distant. I don't know about this God. He seems kind of mean. I don't know. He has a lot of rules. For some of you, it's like, God of my parents, I didn't really like. 
right? Or you just don't know much about God and I would challenge you, think about what it means for you to say yes to Jesus. You have a savior that came and lived this life. God who came in a bod to live this life. There is no other religion where that happens. That the God we serve came down to be a human to live life like we did and then suffer the ultimate death so that we could have life. For you, that's saying yes to Jesus and seeing the authority that God has in this world as king. Jesus has by the cross. The cross also, being the answer to the test, shows us something about ourselves. We should navigate the test by looking at the cross. We need to navigate testing by looking at the cross. And as a follower of Christ, you are going to experience testing and temptation. Sorry to burst your Memorial Day bubble. Like, you're going to experience it. And if you tell me, nope, I've never experienced it. I don't know what that is, and I'm a follower of Christ. Let's talk afterwards. Like, it's just, it's going to happen. That's what Jesus promises. It just is a part of life. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 through 6, this is what Paul's writing to Corinth. This is powerful. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Paul is pleading with the people, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. See what comes out. See what's revealed when testing happens. I, he's like, I, I bet he's like, double dog dare you to. Like, see what's going on. Because we can live this life and we're just doing good and it's, oh, look at me, I'm, I got it all figured out and we're doing a bunch of good and it's gonna be great and that's awesome. And yet internally, he's like, examine, test. What's that look like? What's that look like for you? And so for some of us, it's saying, where are my appetite? My appetite, where am I being satisfied from? Is it really God's goodness or is it all the other things the world provides me that are good things? They're not necessarily bad, but we make them ultimate things. For some of us, it's, it's we're our pursuit of being right. Our pursuit of being right is getting in way of the mission. I want to be right politically. I want to be right in this arena. I want to be right with my faith. I want people to know and prove that I can be seen in the right and we miss the mission of making Jesus make sense, seeing people come to know Jesus. For others, like I said before, it's this pursuit of Christianity without the cross that we pursue, we pursue, we pursue this good life and yet we miss the cross in it. I challenge you, examine yourself, test yourself. Paul's pleading. He's like, don't you know you have Jesus in you? This is necessary. Testing is good. Lastly, it tells me something about temptation. When we fail the test, we are forgiven because of the cross. When we fail the test, we are forgiven because of the cross. This is powerful. Because Jesus passed the test perfectly on the cross. A test that we cannot pass perfectly. And on the cross, and, and his life in the gospel shows us how to navigate testing. Yet, burst another bubble of yours, you're going to fail. When testing, temptation comes, that you are going to fail from time to time. You will, in all of your life. I've tried to figure it out. I've not come to a clear conclusion on how not to fail. Okay? It's not possible. But here is what possible. Here's what possible. That Jesus, dying on the cross, passing the test perfectly, he says, when you fail through the cross and by looking at the cross, by running to the cross, by running to Jesus, confess and you're forgiven. That my perfect test is passed on to you through forgiveness. That when you get to that point, and we all will, I've 
was there this weekend, right? You know, we're all there. We ask for forgiveness. We see what Jesus has done for us. Now listen, I would say another point onto that, that we need to find people around us to run this race together, to run this life together, because testing is going to hit all of us, that we can navigate this together when someone is struggling. We see Jesus passed the test perfectly. We see that we need to know how to navigate this test by looking at the cross, and ultimately we're forgiven when we do fail the test. Why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you for who you are and all that you do. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy. God, we are blown away by uh, the amazing power of the gospel, that in this moment, Matthew 4, we read, Jesus your son is tempted, we see he passed all the tests. That, that, that he was not willing to satisfy himself but go to you. He was not willing to just push for what he thought was right and what is right, but rather he lived for the mission and ultimately he took the cross by passing the ultimate test and saying, you know what, I'm gonna do this for everybody. So God, I pray for us in here. We are all running this life And in this life, as humans, we are going to be tested. We are going to be tempted. God, I pray, myself included, that we would not lose sight of your goodness. We would not lose sight of your mission. We would not lose sight of the cross. No matter where we are in here. For some, that means saying yes to you, jumping into the boat and jumping into this life that is going to have its ups and downs, but knowing that your goodness is going to sustain throughout all of life and into eternal life. For some of us, that's just taking and examining, testing ourselves to see where are we at? What am I revealing about myself? Am I truly pursuing Jesus, becoming more like Jesus? That I pray we wouldn't leave here and, and, and the cross, the gospel would just become something that's, huh, whatever. God, that you would, you would speak to us today. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us and ultimately what you did for us on the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen.